very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, you know what to do by now. Go to VeritasRadio.com and give yourself the gift of truth. Subscribe today. And don't forget to explore Sanitas Radio also. Go there, SanitasRadio.com. It's your life. Take control. And tonight we have a deep discussion. I've received a lot of requests for UFO shows, so this summer we have quite a few for you, and this is one of them. We try to explore the question, how do UFOs and aliens fit into the world that we know right now on Veritas. And tonight we have a veteran of this show back again. I don't need to read his bio. You all know him. And if you do need his bio, you can go to our website. We have his extensive bio right there. We've done a few shows in the past. One of them was a video that we conducted a a year or two ago. But it's always a pleasure to have one of my favorite researchers in the world, directly from Canada, although he is in Portland, Oregon, getting ready for a presentation that he has in the next couple of days. I'm delighted to welcome my friend, Grant Cameron, back to Veritas. Hello, Grant, and welcome back. Well, thank you, Mel. Thanks for uh, spending some time with me and uh, showing some interest in what I'm doing. I really appreciate being on the show. Always, always a pleasure. And I have to ask you right from the get-go regarding this book that uh, I just finished reading last night, Alien Bedtime Stories. Why the title? Uh, the title came from the first book that I did, or well, the second book I did was UFOs, uh, Area 51 and Government Informants. And what happened was all my friends and relatives all felt sorry for me and bought the book. And then I got these comments like, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to read the book, but, you know, I'm reading three pages a day and, um, you know, I'm getting there, but I, I sometimes forget what I read the night before. Because it's kind of a long sort of uh, story. You got to know who all the characters are when you get into the, you know, the Avery and all this kind of stuff. And and so I figured, well, maybe what I'd do is I'd write a book for just ordinary people where I would just uh, do three, four page stories on various things. And so people can, like my friends and relatives, can sort of read uh, three pages a night and get through the story. And they don't have to try to remember the next day what they uh, were reading. 
And it sort of backfired in terms of uh, the title in that uh, most people, even Amazon.com, thought it was um, a children's books. I thought that too. Yeah. And so the the, the uh, notion was to, to republish it, just to change the title. Uh, I don't know what we're going to do yet, but it's basically um, a series of articles that uh, what I would find when I was doing research is that I would write an article, I would, I would sort of make a discovery. I'd read an article and I would uh, put it out and really nobody would read it. I'm going, wow, I spent all this time researching. This is very important stuff. And really nobody would read the story. And uh, so what I decided was I would take all the stories that I'd done like that over the years that really lots of people hadn't read and sort of put them all in one book. And it sort of sort of killed two birds with one stone with this this idea of doing short stories. And uh, so it's out there now. And I'm actually... Um, on to the third book, or well, third and fourth book. So um, it's there, and it has a lot of interesting stories in terms of uh, um, a couple of topics that really aren't discussed too much, like uh, the idea of um, uh, telepathic contactees and the, the kind of downloads they get and stuff like that. Because that basically is where I've sort of gone now, is I spend um, almost all my time dealing with experiencer stories. I had spent most of my career, I'd say 37 years of my career, working on the the nuts and bolts aspects, um, you know, the sightings, and that went to, you know, chasing the Canadian government, chasing the former president of Penn State University, Dr. Eric Walker, chasing the uh, president of the United States and other high-ranking officials, and chasing the CIA and their top scientists and to try to find out what was it that I had seen in 1975. And when it, I was in... Um, Phoenix, Arizona, and you were probably there at UFO Congress of 2012. Yep. Uh, I had been attending a lecture uh, that was given on by Colin Andrews, the famous crop circle researcher. And the only reason I went in the room was that I wanted to uh, pay him respect. I really wasn't interested in crop circles, really wasn't interested in what he was going to say. And I think what had happened is I was there and I was sort of in a sort of like an altered state. I wasn't really paying attention. And I got this download, and this was actually the same day that a guest you've had on, uh, Chris Bledsoe. Mm-hmm. Chris Bledsoe, the famous contactee from North Carolina. Uh, the day I had the download is February 26, 2012. was exactly the same day that Chris Bledsoe had his first encounter with what he called the Shining Lady. So I have this, what I call a download experience, in which um, a bunch of stuff goes into my head instantaneously, um, I'm sort of blown away by this and it's very similar to other, uh, download experiences. For example, if you compare it to Edgar Mitchell's download experience, when he was coming back on, uh, the Apollo, uh, mission, he's coming to the earth and he suddenly talks about this, uh, download experience that he gets where he suddenly realizes everything in the universe is connected. Everything is one. And he described it as, um, he was more certain of the fact that what he was being shown was true than any equation he had ever um, calculated. And that's what happened to me. And this is hard to explain to people. The same as it's hard to explain to people when they say, well, what did you see in terms of UFOs, what it looked like and stuff? It's very hard to explain to somebody what what the UFO looked like, what it was doing, this sort of thing. And it's the same with the download experience where I tell people the most important part of the download experience to me was the fact that it came with absolute certainty. There was basically... Uh, put into my mind, you don't have to check this, you don't have to, uh, you know, calculate, you don't have to do anything. This is absolute truth. That came to me very, uh, very clearly that, that this was true. 
And it came with a great deal of excitement where I suddenly uh, realized that I had sort of um, been on the wrong road for 37 years. And that's when I sort of made this shift going from nuts and bolts to uh, what Jerry Pippen used to call the woo-woo side. And I just made this shift. And so in this book, uh, Alien Bedtime Stories, I tell a couple of these stories, uh, getting into the consciousness aspect, which I, I do now, and uh, downloads and what I think is very, very important material. And that isn't really, I guess I'm one of the few people that's working on it, but I don't think people realize the importance of the number of people, the number of people in the UFO community who are experiencers who have had these download experiences. And I think, have you had um, Ray Hernandez on? I haven't had him on, but I did speak with them for hours a few month, a few weeks ago, yeah. and his story is a, an incredible story too. Yeah, and his story ties into mine as well. In fact, his first encounter where he tell, talks about his dog getting healed, that happened about a week after my download experience. That happened, uh, yeah, but it was about a week, maybe less than a week. And um, so these things all sort of tie in, and he is, of course, the or the guy that started to organize the free organization, the Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters. And Edgar Mitchell is on the board of directors there and Rudy Shield from uh, Harvard University. And in their recent survey that they did of experiencers, I think the last count I saw was 1,115 or something, uh, experiencers had filled out this survey where they're trying to uh, ask questions of experiencers, trying to find common elements. And the one that interested me um, was the one with downloads. It's question number 54 on their their survey. And Ray has been nice enough to say to me that I could interview people um, in the survey who are reporting downloads. And as you remember, um, the Roper poll in 1991 that was financed by Bob Bigelow showed that 2% of the, the American people conservatively are exhibiting characteristics of being experiencers. And that would uh, equate to about six and a half million people in America that are could possibly be UFO experiences. We've had abduction experiences, this sort of thing. What this free survey showed was that 43%, and this goes through all the different, uh, as the numbers were going up, I was watching the number, it's almost always the same. It's 43% of the people in that survey who are claiming to be experiencers are answering question number 54, which basically says, have you, and these are people not that have been regressed, these are people that just remember being on the ship or having this encounter, have you ever uh, found that you have scientific material or mathematical material that's in your head that you did not learn through any other means, through going to school or anything like that? And that's basically the download experience, that there are 43% of experiencers who are saying, yes, they've got downloads of scientific material, of uh, mathematical material, and this equates to, I think, about 2.7 million people in America that are potentially walking around where aliens are putting material in their heads. And I think this is extremely significant stuff. And that's what I spend most of my time. And in the book, I talk a little bit about this. I start to get into the um, the consciousness aspect. But that's sort of a whole new book that that's, it's finished. Uh, it has to go through the editing process yet. But it's a book on strictly... Uh, um, downloads and inspirations. And I go into the whole idea of where do good ideas come from? Where do Nobel Prizes come from? Where do uh, some of the, the biggest, most popular songs come from? Where do some of the biggest, most popular books come from? And what you find out is that people are claiming the same sort of thing 
uh, as the UFO experiences that this download phenomena is is occurring. I wish we could be asking Tesla if he were alive today. But you know, speaking of a free. Um, Whitley Strieber, along with, with other great researchers, I, I, I am one of the interviewers, too. I didn't know that we could actually pick perhaps a question because I would love to interview people based on the downloads. Because like you, I am getting away from the nuts and bolts as well. I think I'm done with that. I want to learn from the experiences. I want to know what they've learned, what their mission here is. I have said it before. I've had encounters that I cannot... I'd say they're they're aliens, but I've you know people who have listened to this show for a long time know of my story of how things that I didn't know happened. And this very show, I had a dream, and it was put into action the next day by my interview with Milton Torres. I've yeah. never in my life interviewed anybody in my life. I'm not a journalist. I've never had any broadcasting experience. And then with that dream, the next day. Veritas went into motion and it's been, you know, eight and some, you know, some years by now. I've interviewed you a few times by now and I've always surprised ever since I think it was 2009, I went to a conference in Rio Rico and there was Stephen, Dr. Stephen Greer, but it was Colleen Andrews who told me, Mel, what changed for me was consciousness. It's not only crop circle, it's consciousness. And boom, not even a few months later, you and I are talking and you mentioned the same word, consciousness. And I don't know why, but this snowball is changing. The field is changing now to consciousness. Why do you think that is, Grant? Um, I do a lecture on uh, what I call the alien pattern. And what I think is that the, the mistake we make in, in life is that we assume we, we've sort of been taught, you know, this uh, random theory of evolution uh, we're biological robots, we're, uh, everything's random, it's chance. And so we sort of drag all this nonsense into our thinking in ufology. And we sort of think that uh, things are random, that when you see a UFO, well, you just happen to be in the right place at the right time or the wrong place in the wrong time, whatever the situation is. The lecture I do on pattern is I say, basically, when you come right down to it, there is really nothing random. This is You're watching a pattern take place. You are watching... Uh, aliens, uh, for example, 1894, 1895, 86, 87, in that period, uh, the ships were flying around. They were called the, the airships and they were wooden ships with propellers and, uh, people hanging off ropes and stuff like that. If you go to, uh, World War II, you have the Foo Fighters. You don't have any flying sausage yet. You have the Foo Fighters and the Foo Fighters go away. And I say, well, what happened to the Foo Fighters? I mean, when was the last time we had a Foo Fighters? Right. Lady? And, uh, there was none, 1945. And then suddenly uh, we detonate the atomic bomb, and then suddenly, boom, all these uh, flying saucers appear. And then from uh, the, the late 40s, we have the green fireball sightings. So we have these green fireballs that are flying around all the military establishments and all the nuclear uh, places where they develop the weapons and the nuclear power plants. And then when was the last time we had a green fireball sighting? I mean, it doesn't happen. It just basically went away. And then we don't have from 1947 till 1952. I don't, you know, some people will sort of dispute this with me, but I say basically nobody talked to an alien between 1947 and 1952. Uh, a couple of days after we detonate the hydrogen bomb, suddenly Adamski and Williamson come forward and say we're talking to aliens, and they say stop the nuclear weapons. So it only started people started talking to aliens in 1952, 
the the abduction experience people will sort of think wow this has always been going on and i say it may have been going on but people have only been aware of it since betty and barney hill in 1961 it was like they turned on betty and barney hill then they turned on you know this person that person and you see a number of events where you see uh clearly that we are basically watching the aliens uh turn the pages of a book and one of the, the key examples that i use in my lecture is the one with the Allagash, the four guys from the Allagash. And uh, this happened a year after I had my sighting. This is 1976. My sighting was in 75. The four guys from the Allagash, this is before Missing Time uh, existed. Uh, uh, Bud Hopkins didn't write that book till 1980s. Nobody knew about Missing Time in the 1970s with regards to uh, UFO abductions. So these four guys on the Allagash thought they had outrun this UFO. The UFO had come. They had mad, madly paddled away on their on their canoe. They got to the shore. They see the the, the this four hour fire had had gone down to nothing, and they thought it was kind of strange. But nobody really put to the fact that they had been abducted. It was exactly eleven years later that two of them start having dreams. And I say, well, what's the chances that exactly two years later, some of these both these guys start having bad dreams? The one guy gets checked into a hospital, and he's in the hospital, and they're doing tests to find out why he can't sleep at night. And so he's 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 upset. He says to the nurse, he says, I need something to read. I'm bored. Go down to get me something to read. She goes down to the bookstore on the main floor of the hospital, and she brings him what? Communion. What possible book? And, of course, he absolutely <laughs> flips out when he yeah. sees the book Communion, and they, they actually basically have to restrain him. He just absolutely loses it. And then they bring in a psychiatrist to find out why this guy flipped out. And the guy happens to be an associate of John Mack. So what's the chances of that? What's the chances of them bringing up the book Communion into his room? And then it just happens that the guy who writes the book, his name is escaping me right at the moment, but the guy who writes the book and does the investigation just happens to be coming through town a couple of weeks later. Ridley Strieber, you mean? Uh, no, this is um, the guy who wrote the book on the Allagash. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and he turns out he's an experiencer as well. And he just happens to be coming through town the, the next week. And he's interested in contactees who are twins. And two of these guys happen to be twins. So you look at this incident and it's like coincidence, coincidence, coincidence. It's just beyond, beyond any uh, uh, chance that this is happening by pattern. Um, and so anyway, you have this incident and then you have a lot of stuff that people don't really realize. For example, uh, when you take a look at the Betty and Barney Hill case, you have uh, Barney Hill has got the binoculars and he's looking at the craft and he's saying, they're looking out the windows, they're looking at me, I can, they can see me, they're looking out the windows. doesn't happen anymore. I don't care what anybody says. That happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, sometimes in the 80s. doesn't happen anymore. There are no people reporting or very few people reporting UFOs with windows and aliens looking out the window. But it happened a lot back then. Same as, as trace cases. You know, Stanton will always talk about the 4,000 trace cases. A lot of people talk about the 4,000 trace cases. I talked to uh, um, uh, Ted Phillips. This is going back almost 10 years. I said, Ted, I have the impression that trace cases don't happen anymore. Is that true? He said, yeah, that's basically true. It really doesn't happen anymore. It's like now we get we get crop circles, We and even crop circles are dying out. Uh, these landing traces don't happen. The same as little aliens that are walking around the craft. These, these stories happen in the 50s, 60s, 70s. You have little aliens walking around with little rods, and they're picking up rocks and, and stuff and plants. doesn't happen anymore. Uh, you have uh, the, the, the cattle mutilation started in 1967. 1975, when I started, was the peak year for cattle mutilations. Cattle mutilations, there's the odd one, but basically that has gone by the wayside as well. 
And so that's what I say is when you start looking at it, you see these different patterns where one thing comes and then do another thing. And so I say, well, where are the green, where are the green fireballs? Well, they're on another planet. That's a planet that's a hundred years behind us. And they sent the, the Foo Fighters and then they send in the green fireball guys and then they'll send in the contactee guys. And it's almost like they've done this a thousand times on a thousand different planets and they know exactly what they're doing. And they're, they're just leading us through, through a, uh, a pattern of events. And that's when you get the consciousness thing where Colin Andrews gets turned on about the consciousness. Then you, you get affected by that. I get affected by that. And then you start to see this, this sort of breakout in about 2012 of this consciousness thing where now it's the popular thing. Like when I go to, to lecture, I do the presidents, I do all this sort of stuff. And they, uh, there was even a situation in one of the recent ones where I was doing two lectures in the same city. And they were fighting about who was going to get the consciousness lecture. No, no. Do the other one for them. Do the really? aliens and, and music. Huh. I want the consciousness thing. So it's very popular now in the um, the UFO circles in conferences. Whereas before, even myself, I remember before I had this awakening in 2012, I used to go like at UFO Congress and they have, you know, the big room where they sell all the stuff. And there would be the crystals and the women with the, you know, the all that stuff. And I yeah. was going why did they let these people in the room? This is making us look bad. <laughs> right. and, and then I just make this 180 degree, and now I'm with them. And I remember when I did my first consciousness lecture at, at UFO Congress, I, I thought I'd invented the wheel. I thought, I mean, I had just nailed this thing, and all these women are coming in and really woke me up because they were coming in, and some of them were crying, and they had books, and they said, this is the book I wrote, and it, it's a, it deals with consciousness, and you've got it right on. And they, they would be you know very emotional about this sort of thing. And then I suddenly realized, Man, I've been sleeping. I mean, I would completely miss the boat on this, although I think I had to go through that process. I had to go through the same as, as anybody else. You build up on certain things, and when the time is right, then they, 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 you get handed whatever you want. So I believe that, that we're being handed, and that's why it's so important with these experiencers who are getting the downloads, is why are they getting downloads? What are these people getting? And, and we'll talk about this later, but some of them are actually getting cancer stuff cures to cancer, stuff like this. And I say, why would we chase around lights in the sky, which are we've done for 70 years, and which basically uh, uh, have given us a, uh, an awareness that something's going on, but you really can't resolve anything by determining how many red ones there are, how many green ones there are, how many fast ones there are, how many slow ones. You've got people who are actually interacting with the phenomena, and that's what I say. If you want, if there's an answer to the UFO problem, it is going to be found dealing with the people who are dealing with the beings that are flying those crafts or, um, you know, uh, behind this phenomena. It's like I, I sometimes I talk about and I just had dinner with Travis Walton here. And it was the old idea that you have to do what Travis Walton did. You got to sort of instead of being up on top of a skyscraper, looking down at these little tiny uh, things moving around on the on the streets. You have to go down like Travis did, run in front of one of these things, these cars, wave your hands and, and get them to stop and take you on board to find out what's going on. Yeah, go to the forest in the middle of, of, of Snowflake, Arizona in the middle of the night and then point up and then let me take you. But, you know, I have to say uh, the the author of the book you mentioned, it's uh, The Allagash Abductions, Undeniable Evidence of Alien Intervention, Raymond Fowler, I believe is his name. Yeah, yeah. And, he, he, and he turns out he's an, an experiencer. And so you see that a lot of this stuff is, is, is not as random as we thought. The same as the other big event, one of the big other big events was the, the shutdown of the, the nuclear missile silos. And this story Malmstrom. has been talked about at, at, at Malmstrom, yeah. Yep. And this has been talked about for years. And now suddenly Bob Solis has come forward and says he's an experiencer. 
So an experiencer is a lifer. There, there's nobody who gets picked up when they're 20 years old for the first time. They're, they're lifers. They've been picked up their whole life. So he's an experiencer his whole life. And then you start looking at it that it was almost like, you know, like the uh, the spy behind the Iron Curtain. I mean, they actually had one of their guys in the silo when they shut the, all the missiles down. It was one of their their guys. They had, you know, he'd been uh, abducted numerous times. And so you start looking at these things and you say, well, is any of this random? And I, I really start to think that that's the main question. Is the universe chance or is it pattern? And I say, the more you look at it, the more you evaluate things, the more you see that it's like Rupert Sheldrake talks about. It's patterns. It's the universe is, is building patterns. It's learning. And there is really no chance that a lot of the stuff we think is chance is uh, not chance at all. You know, it's interesting that everything seems to be faces. Like I used to be in the business world, very black and white. If you told me the word consciousness, I would think you were new agey talking about crystals. Yeah. I would say, just go, go to the psychiatrist and, and get under medication. And then as time went by, as you said, I would go to a UFO conference and I would get away from those crystal ladies. But then I started approaching them and asking questions and, you know, what are the crystals? And then I started in 2013, after 2012, I realized people were emailing me saying, Mel, you're discussing too many negative stuff. You're lowering my vibrations. And I realized there's something to it. And then, boom, Sanitas came up, and now we raise consciousness. And then we have interviewed like people like uh, somebody you know now, Dr. William Bankston, Bankston um, who, who heals with his own hands. You have a story to tell, right? Yeah. I, I um, This got into my... Um what I'm working on now, which takes a while to explain, but um, I, I do this right brain, left brain thing. And basically what happened was um, I listened to a show called Skeptical with Alex Takaris, and he had uh, Bankston on. I hadn't listened to the interview. And then he had on uh, William Bankston, who had done 35 years of research where he has 100% cures. And it, he's almost like the UFO world where nobody really knows what he's doing. Uh, you think he's won the Nobel Prize for, for what he's done as this 100% success ratio with, with working with mice under control conditions and stuff like that. And Alex interviewed one of his healers out of Chicago, uh, 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 Bernadette Doran. And when I heard this, uh, Alex had a, uh, I think it had heart palpitations and a very serious condition, whatever. And he calls her up and he interviews her and he says, uh, okay, I, I, I interviewed Bankston uh, a couple of years ago, and I'm going to interview you, and I'm going to take your little treatment, and I just want to let you know that um, I'm going to broadcast the show, and when it's over, I'm going to tell people whether it worked or not. And so he comes across, and he basically broadcasts the show and says, gone. And I went, wow. And at exactly the same time, and this comes down to this thing, is this, ra is this random, is this pattern? I was diagnosed with a heart murmur, and I was just shocked. So this is an innocent heart murmur because I had never had before. So suddenly I was told by my family doctor, you've got a heart murmur. And I just sort of went into panic mode because, of course, when we come to the States, and I spend a lot of time in the States, you have to get insurance and to travel in the States. And we always have this fear, you know, something's going to happen in the States and mm -hmm. you're going to, you know, have to sell everything to get yourself out of the States to pay for the, for the medical. Because in Canada, we have free medical. So we're always petrified about this. So when I was diagnosed with this heart murmur, she sent me to a specialist. And uh, I, I'm in panic mode and I go to the specialist and the intern deals with me for about half an hour. He's asking me all these questions. He's doing all these tests and stuff. And he, he's convinced he goes, runs out and gets the specialist. The specialist comes back and they had to have this question and answer thing because this guy apparently is about to do a test on this. And he's asking, what, what, what valve is it? Why do you know it's this valve and this sort of thing? And I'm going, 
oh my goodness, my life is over here. I mean, I can't, can't travel to the States anymore. And then I heard this interview by, uh, by Alex with Bernadette Dorn and uh, the fact that it worked. So um, I contacted Bernadette and I said, have you ever done a heart murmur? And she said, yeah, we did one with uh, somebody who was uh, contaminated with mercury or something. And I've found they've done one since. And so I said, okay, I'm game. I mean, I, I, I have no nothing to lose. And I started and I couldn't believe it. it worked. It was almost like the UFO thing. It's like you, if you're on the outside and you hear the story, you can believe it or disbelieve it, but if it happens to you, you know. So I was absolutely floored by the fact that this had worked for me. And then I started looking at at his work and just incredible work. The the, the work with with uh, where he, he states basically 100% success ratio with anybody that he's dealt with with cancer. And the more aggressive the cancer, the faster they can make it go away. And the, the only thing that doesn't work is if somebody's taking radiation or chemotherapy. And I, I can sort of explain with, this, with the right brain, left brain model. But when I heard them talking about this, what he calls rapid image cycling, that's when as soon as he said rapid image cycling, I said, I know how this thing works. I know what they're doing. And it's basically this, the thing that I put as the sort of the mechanism when I wrote the book, uh, Downloads and Inspirations, the mechanism is the idea that we have consciousness in the universe. And in order to, uh, the way it's been set up, in order for you to live in the physical world, you have to have a conscious mind. You cannot survive without your conscious mind. So you have uh, this conscious mind. And most people, again, here's these assumptions where in the scientific world, they'll say uh, consciousness is just an epiphenomenon. It's just, it's just a phenomena that occurs uh, from the brain. The brain is like a, a, a light. Uh, the consciousness is the light that comes off the light. When the light goes out, the consciousness dies. That's all it is. It's just, a, it's just sort of this uh, uh, offshoot from the, the physical brain. But what we what you find through what was called split brain research, which actually won the 1981 Nobel Prize, is the fact that when people had epilepsy, what they would do in the 1960s is they would cut what is called the corpus callosum, which is what connects two brains. You have two brains. So we run around in the world and we assume that you have a brain. You have a, you have a one mind, you have one brain. Totally wrong. You have at least two brains and two minds. And these two brains actually fight. When you cut the corpus callosum, which they did with epileptic people, the right brain could not communicate with the left brain. And these brains would actually fight with each other. They would actually like both try to open the car door at the same time. The one would try to smoke. The other way, the other hand would take the smoke out and throw it. The other hand would light another smoke. And, and so you had this, this situation where we, you suddenly start to realize like everything else in, in nature, it's much more complex. And the guy that took over after the Nobel prize was won by Roger Sperry, who did the initial split brain research. The guy that took over was his name was Michael Gazaniga. And Gazaniga developed the technique of talking to the two brains. And the left brain is the, the uh, analytical, rational brain. This is the scientific, the atheist brain. And it's the, the, the one that, that can talk. The right brain is the non-local brain. It's so it can't talk. The only way you can talk to the, to the, or the right brain is to get the left hand to do something. Cause your, your right brain runs the left side of your body. The left brain runs the right side of the body. So in order to talk to the, the right brain, what they would do is, is say, pick up the object that you see. So the left hand would pick up an object or draw an object. So this, so you had this split brain research. And when they started asking these, these questions, what, what they developed was the fact that, that there was these definite two consciousness and that inside, and this is very important for when it comes to skepticism in UFOs, inside the left brain, the rational analytical brain, they discovered like a third consciousness. And this is what they called 
the the interpreter or the storyteller. And I and I call it the sort of the Nixon brain. It's like the pathological liar inside everybody's <laughs> rational, uh, analytical left brain. Your conscious brain is what's called a storyteller. And this has been scientifically verified that this exists. And they they would ask questions of it, and they would do all this sort of stuff. And what happens? And this is where skepticism comes from. Your conscious mind, when you have two facts, if there's a, a gap between the two facts, what this interpreter does, this separate consciousness, is it will fill in the gaps. So it will fill in the holes. And that's what happens, as far as I'm concerned, with skepticism, is that if you are, uh, if you're, uh, build a worldview, you go to school, you think it's a physical world, uh, there's nothing outside the physical world, UFOs, all this stuff is nonsense. And then suddenly someone comes to you and says, okay, uh, this person was abducted, they were levitated up, they were moved through the wall. Immediately, there's a big hole in, the, in your wall, in your, in your worldview. Suddenly, there's a hole that says, this worldview that you have is wrong. And that storyteller will immediately pick up and, and make a story. So what they would do when they, and to show how they did it was they would, they would ask, they'd, have, they'd talk to the one side of the brain, like the, the right brain, and they would say, get up and walk. So the guy would get up and walk, and then they would ask the rational, analytical, conscious side, why did you get up and walk? Well, of course, that side of the brain didn't know because it can't communicate, but it would always make up an excuse. It would say, I, I, I wanted to stretch, or they would say, why, why did you uh, uh, um, get up? I needed to get a Coke. What, why did you wave? I saw somebody. Why did you laugh? Well, the computer was funny, and it, it makes up, it's just like garbage, just like the crash test dummy thing. It just makes up something. And then what you find is that it becomes very solid, that you can't move that story. So this was discovered that they had this third consciousness. And then Michael Gazenega actually is on the record as saying that inside both sides of the brain, we have dozens, if not thousands of modules. Like you have a visual center, you have an audio center, you have all these different things. And basically, instead of this worldview that we were given about consciousness, the consciousness is just this sort of an offshoot from the physical brain and it's just one brain and it's just this one consciousness that is produced. Now we suddenly have thousands of modules that the brain is has all these different centers that do this. This one does this and they're all doing this independently and something is putting it all together. And the reason that you think that you have one brain and that you have everything is, is uniform and everything's together is because there's something putting it all together and giving you the illusion that you have one brain and you're seeing one thing. And meanwhile, there's thousands of these modules that are gathering material, doing all their kind of stuff. And you start looking at that and you start to understand the whole idea of oneness in the universe, which is a key thing that I've discovered in the last little while, is that the, the one thing is, is the world chance or is it pattern? And the other one is the left brain believes in self. The left brain believes in ego. It's me, I'm an individual. Everything's random. It's all, uh, it's me versus you, survival of the fittest, rape, pillage, steal, whatever you can to, to get what you want. But the right brain, the analytical brain, and this is basically in neurology, they will admit to this, this, this situation that the right brain believes in, in oneness. It believes that everything's connected. It doesn't believe in time and space. Everything is here and now. And this is the world that I believe the aliens, the spirits, all these people that are downloading are on that side. And so what happened to me when I went into my lecture, is my my I had I was sort of daydreaming so I was able to shut off the filter of my conscious mind and this is what happens with, with say meditators 
what you're trying to do in meditation is you're trying to shut down that storyteller, yep. that, that talker mind. is talking and while you're trying to meditate. It's saying, buy some bananas, your nose is itchy, do this, do that, and, and you can't shut the thing up. And that's the storyteller in the left brain. So what if you can shut the storyteller down through meditation or psychedelic drugs is another prime example where you have experiments that most people really aren't aware of where um, in 1966, I'll give you one that would show this. They, you have a, a, you ha, you think everything's done in the left brain, in the rational analytical brain, and yet in 1966, this is as they shut down the LSD program in the United States in Menlo Park, California. Uh, the, one of the former directors of IAMS is working on a on a team where they're doing uh, uh, using LSD for uh, creative stuff. So what they would do is they would, in order to get into this study, you had to have a problem, and they would have engineers, scientists and architects. And you had to have a problem that you'd been working on for three months and you could not solve this problem. You've been working on it. You've been, you're, you just cannot solve this problem. Then what they would do is they would sit the person down, they would give them a hundred micrograms of LSD, put headphones on them, put eye patches on them, have monitors, sit in a room and watch. And they had 48 people go through this experiment till the day they shut this, this program down because of the, the government regulations. Within minutes, 44 out of the 48, had had the answer to the problem that they had spent at least three months and were totally stymied. Within minutes, they had the answer. And that's because psychedelics is like meditation. Psychedelics, if you talk to people who've had a, a like strong psychedelic experience, the number one thing they'll say is, it completely shattered my ego. My ego was gone, and I suddenly realized that everything was connected. The same as the ayahuasca experience. The ego was killed. That's left brain. That's the self, all this sort of stuff. And suddenly, in like the ayahuasca experience, suddenly everybody says, Everything's alive. Everything's connected. The same thing that Edgar Mitchell saw when he came back, the same sort of download I had where it was like, it's consciousness. It's, it's not this random world. It's all connected. It's consciousness. And so now my model and it, everything starts to fit. And that's where Bankston's uh, technique fit, where he has this 100% success ratio. His, his success ratio is so good. He tells the story that they had to move the control rats out of the city into That's another right. city. Yeah. That if any of the healers got anywhere near the control rats, the control rats were cured as well. So you say, how does this guy have this massive success where you would have recce healers who have sort of a pretty good success, but really nothing. You've got this guy with 100%. And this is where I say, when you get somebody who's at that high, high success ratio, you got to look at what is this guy doing? And he kept talking about this rapid image cycling. So I, I'm going, what is this rapid image cycling? I'm, I'm trying to get it. And finally, I got his book and I saw what he's talking about rapid image. And I did it when, when I had my treatment for the, for the heart murmur, which when I went for the echo, it was gone. It was like, I, I couldn't believe it. And I did this. So I did the, the rapid image cycling, which is, is what, what it is, is you take at least 20 images. I have 42 on my list. So we have 20 images, but they have to be images that appeal to the left brain. They have to be images that appeal to the ego. It has to be something that you want to make you happy, like a new motorhome, a bigger house, and you have to sort of describe the house. And what you do in this rapid image cycling is that you spin these images. And, and Bankston claims he can go 200 plus images a second. So you're flipping these images at a tremendous speed with the emotion of the image. But it's all left brain stuff. And it's the same thing as the meditation. It's the same thing as the... Almost as, subliminal. Well, you're you're shutting down the the ego. You, right, you're giving right. the ego. You're sending it for coffee, saying, "Look at these images. Go and and the, the ego is going. Oh, this is cool, man. I'm going to get the new car. I'm going to get this and that. And you the the conscious mind gets shut down, and you're able to open up the as as Aldous Huxley called it. 
He said it's the filter. The conscious mind is a filter. If you, if you had every all the consciousness that exists coming in, you'd go crazy. So the, the conscious mind is a filter that filters down the consciousness to like maybe a hundredth of one percent of all consciousness, just enough for you to survive in the physical world. And the rest of the consciousness, it's almost like the the uh, Eastern philosophy. Atman equals Brahman. The small mind equals the big mind. That the big mind is composed of all the small minds or the idea of the internet. That the computer, that you take all the material you have and you download it onto the internet and then all you need is your computer and you need the password. And if you can get the password and you log on to the internet and you get material off the internet. And this is what I believe is happening in whether it's inventions, whether it's it's your experience or, or my experience, is that you at, for one point you get the... the um, the sort of the password and you get on and they download stuff when you're ready you've done the work your left brain has gathered all the material and then at some point you relax your mind and then boom you 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 get onto the internet you get the material and it it sort of you you can get on for a minute or two and when you take a look at people who are savants people who are highly autistic nonverbal autistics i don't know if you've had uh dr diane hennessy powell on yet but yes, I have. I have. Yeah, and, and she has this nine-year-old uh, child, this uh, uh, Haley, who at one point got 162 numbers in a right in a row right, and this is basically pure telepathy. And when I talk about the connection to the alien thing, I say, what is the difference between an alien and a human? There basically is only one difference. The aliens are purely telepathic. You know, I'm smiling here, Grant, because you keep mentioning all these names, Dr. You know, William Bankston, we've had on the show. Then you talk about um, meditation. We had uh, Dean Slider the other day, Natural Meditation, A Guide to Effortless Meditative Practice. Then uh, last week I had Dr. Rick Strassman discussing DMT. It's almost like, you know, with Veritas, we explore the mysteries of the universe. But now we need to bring that to help humanity to take us to the next level. That's why I started the other. And it seems that we're both more or less exploring the same things. Yeah. It's like when you get on the right road. That's what I found. When I made this, when I had this download experience in 2012 and I started, it was like I was totally overloaded. Every book made sense. I'd have articles that I'd read a hundred times before and suddenly it made sense. And it was like, wow. And suddenly you, the synchronicities start to come where things start to, to work. And it's it's almost like you and I are in the same sort of river, and we're we're interacting with the with the same sort of thing when you get on that road, and all the consciousness is rising, and you you get a lot of people even now in the UFO community. You can go and talk to people about where I talk about the whole idea about entangled particles, quantum physics. Well, everybody in the UFO field now you don't have to explain what you're talking about entangled particles and quantum physics and stuff like that. Everybody seems to be in it. That consciousness has risen. It may not be, you know, fully adopted by most people, but everybody understands the idea that quantum physics is backing up what we've been saying for a number of years. And even the entangled particle ties into the same sort of thing that you and I are talking about now is this idea that Edgar Mitchell, this, this oneness idea of the right, of the right brain is that if you take a particle on one side of the universe and a particle on the other side, you change the spin, the other one will instantly change. And so people, so if you, do something to the one particle, the other one knows what you're doing, it's aware. And so when I lecture, I say, that means that particles at the at the elementary of photon, at the electron level, are conscious. They're aware of what you did to their buddy. And people will say, well, no, that's not what it means. That's what the, the these classical scientists will say, no, that's not what it means. And I say, yes, that is exactly what it means. Consciousness is elementary to the universe. It is the primary thing. And we're starting to understand that, that it's not 
it's not physical material that creates consciousness, which gets taught to our kids in school. It's exactly the other way around. The opposite. It's the consciousness that produces the physical. Absolutely. And let's go back to the downloads for a moment. Let's let's call them extraterrestrials, interdimensional, fill in the blanks, downloads. I think it's the safest way to create change, uh, Grant. Short of landing on the White House lawn, they pass on the knowledge or, or mission to say you and some others to certain people, and change occurs that way without any traumatic experience. Well, one person at a time. That's exactly because the model we use is what I call the, the sort of the American uh, military foreign policy way. Uh, we come to somebody that we're going to sort of move out of the third world and we say we're here to bring you freedom, democracy, Jesus and McDonald's. And we say this is what you're going to do. And and next thing you know, you got to hide in a compound and everybody's trying to shoot you. And so what the aliens are doing and I, 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 I had one thing which is still kind of controversial in the UFO community is I had the sole contract idea. And that is the fact that there's really nothing random about the people that are being picked, that the people are being picked, I believe have chosen to adopt that rule, that they before they were born, they came in and they have agreed to do this sort of stuff. And uh, I, I say, if you can find one example in the UFO world where something goes back before birth, then the whole UFO uh, story suddenly has got nothing to do with free energy. It's got nothing to do with metals. It's got nothing to do with other planets. It's a spiritual problem. And there's two of them that I, I usually mention in my lectures. One is Chris Bledsoe. When Chris Bledsoe did his, his regression in 2008 by this associate of uh, O'Connor, who was an associate of John Mack, at, at one point he's saying, promise, promise, promise. And O'Connor says to Chris Bledsoe, he says, what are you talking about, promise? What, what are you promising the aliens? Can you talk to the aliens? And Chris said, yeah, I can talk to them. And he said, ask them what the promise is. And he said, they have been with me since before I was born. And the promise was he was to carry the message. He'd been given this message. So here you have a situation where it appears that it's gone back before birth. The other story I always tell when I do the alien rock music and it's tied in there is the Moody Blues, which sold, they sold 50 million albums, very high end band uh, out of Great Britain. And Colin Andrews tells the story. Colin Andrews tells the story. He's lecturing one day and uh, Mike Pinder from the, the lead for the Moody Blues comes up to him and he says, uh, we'd like to talk to you. Uh, my lead guitarist is here. We'd like to have lunch with you after. So Colin says, okay. So after they go, and Colin says, they're telling this story. And he said, there's no way these guys are making the story up. It was going back and forth and back and forth. Tell them this, tell them this. And they're going back and forth and they're telling this story. And what they were telling him is the story that before they were born, they were aware, they were on a craft. They believed it was a craft. There was some elder people there. And they were being told, you're going to be musicians in the next lifetime. This is going to be your parents. Uh, you're going to put lyrics into songs. And uh, they, they basically said, this had been planned before they were born. And both these guys were telling the story. So when you look at things in that way, in the in sort of with a reincarnation view, then you suddenly realize that uh, this is how they're doing it, that certain people have volunteered to go through the river of forgetfulness, to come onto the earth and to uh, play this role of being an abductee or being a broadcaster like you. And what, what and this is sort of backed up. If you talk to anybody who's an experiencer, what I always ask them, I ask them a couple questions. The one I always ask them is, do you believe that, you, that you've got a mission and almost every one of them, almost yes. everyone will say, yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but I, yeah, I think I got a mission. And that's what it is. It's like the, it's a forgiveness, the river of forgetfulness. They don't know what it is, but they have agreed to this. And, and so they're moving it from the bottom up. So you're going to get situation where you're going to do the broadcasting. I'm going to do uh, lectures. 
Uh, Chris Bledsoe is going to get this movie. Uh, everybody's got this different role. And I found so many of the, uh, the big people like in um, Olivia Newton-John, for example, uh, had this very dramatic experience at 15 years old, UFO experience. And she's big time ecology. She's big time into uh, the uh, animal rights and stuff like that. And what I found is that a lot of the people experiencers are people who are heads of groups. Uh, environmental groups and this is how it's coming where they motivate certain people to do certain things and this is how they're it's coming from the from the bottom up and they're giving these people the, the abilities they need the techniques they need these people have volunteered for it or even fought for it i when i gave my consciousness lecture there's a woman in in phoenix who came to me the next year after our lecture she said i just want to let you know that when you did the lecture uh she was i i'm very much into the work of dr michael newton who i don't know if you got him on but sure uh, life between lives and um she had gone to one of his students for a regression after she heard my consciousness lecture and the question was asked did you volunteer to be an experiencer and she said no i didn't volunteer i earned it i worked hard to be in that position so here is a situation where it, we we present abductees as these poor helpless people who have been violated and who have uh you know been taken against their will and here's this woman saying no i actually fought my way to to play this role, and uh, when you when you look at it, a question that still hasn't been addressed that I say uh, uh, should be done during uh, regressions of experiencers is to ask the, the question: At any point in the past, did you agree to be in this situation? Because what what happens is in most regressions is that people do what I call the CNN interview. They say, you know, so what happened to you? Did they probe you? I mean, did it hurt? How did you feel? Were you scared? And then and, and they circle them in this this row of, of fear. And yet what you have is a situation where, um, say you're a lawyer in, in, say, Tucson, and someone comes to you and says, okay, um, I, this woman's driving me nuts, man. I, you got to get rid of this woman. And she's just, I, I can't get, I can't. You're a lawyer going to say, hang on, shut, sh- shut it down for a second. Let me ask you a question. Who are you talking about? Who is this woman you're talking about? Are you married to her? Are you a common law? When did you first meet this woman? We do not ask that question. And when I talked to Mary Rodwell about this, when I brought this up on a, on a big group with uh, with Free at one point, and Mary Rodwell agreed with me that the answer will be 99.9% of the people that she's dealt with will say yes to that, that question. Yes, I agree to this situation, which changes the whole phenomenon. It's basically you working with, with the aliens, to do something that that there's an overall purpose to this thing and they're not here to steal our gold they're not here to rape us they're not here to eat us they're, they're altruistic they're right-brained and right brain is very altruistic which is something which has actually been shown in these split brain experiments where it was very interesting uh the right brain if you're this telepathic the alien thing people would say well why do the aliens come and help why do they come here to help us and i say because they're right brain they they understand the oneness of the universe and if you understand the oneness of the universe you realize that it's not rape, pillage, and steal, whatever you can. It's you've got to help. You have, you're building a universe, and they're very altruistic. And even in the split brain research, when they had these, these patients with, where the brain was split, they actually had to stop the people because what was happening is, the, like when you gave something to the right brain and then asked the left brain, the left brain couldn't figure out what it was because there's no communication between the brains. So it would guess. And then what they said was that the, the, the right brain, the non-local brain, would try to cue, and he would go, <coughs> or it would shake its head. Or at one point, they actually caught the left hand writing the answer to a question 
on the on the right hand. So the right the right brain was actually trying to help the left brain answer the questions. It was altruistic. And that's the whole idea when you have aliens and this this whole thing about telepathy, which was my download, it's all about ESP. It's all about consciousness. This is the key. And you have this this thing where uh, the right brain is altruistic and it realizes the oneness of the universe and it's there to help. Whereas the left brain, if you have if you have if you're left brained, you're into self or you're into ego, you're into good versus bad, me versus you. And therefore, that's where you come down to war. So if you have aliens, like people will tell these stories about aliens, they're having an alien war, these aliens are fighting. And I say, do you realize how stupid this sounds? I mean, if you're telepathic and you and I are both telepathic, how could we start a war? I know where you're going to shoot. You know where I'm going to shoot. Both of us know who's going to die. And if you, so I realize I'm going to be the one killed in the battle. Why would I start the war? I mean, you're telepathic. You can read the future and stuff. You, you can't have a war. And that's the whole idea of, of the oneness that when you realize everything is one, you, you stop this idea of the, the Russians are bad guys, the Arabs are bad guys, the, the Jews are bad guys, the African-Americans are bad guys. And, and that's what we do because we're left brain. We're, we're in this physical material world where we say it's, it's survival of the fittest, it's me versus you. And we look at it as all our problems are caused by the Chinese and the Russians and the, and the Arabs. And if it weren't for them, we would be happy. And, and that's all left brain. Once you go to the right brain, to the oneness idea, you realize that everything is one, that you realize that that if I kill you, all I'm doing is cutting off my own arm because you and I are connected. We're all connected. We're all one. And when you look at the brain, that's how it works. No matter what they're going to try to tell you in in school, in evolutionary biology, it is oneness. You have a hundred billion neurons in your brain and they are all working together as one. If they didn't, you'd be in a lot of trouble. They're all working together. The same as the body. The body has a hundred trillion atoms and they are all doing exactly what they're supposed to do. They all have their little jobs and they're doing it. You have a, you have a half a million cells die in your body every day. They are replaced and it's like this little thing and it works very efficiently and they're all doing what they're supposed to do. The minute your part of your body decides that it's going to be playing the left brain role, it's going to be survival of the fittest. I'm going to go do my own thing. That's when you get disease. That's when it goes out of, out of alignment. And that's where the Bankston thing comes from with the rapid image cycling. That Bankston said the only time that the cure doesn't work is when you have radiation or chemotherapy. And radiation and chemotherapy are both left brain technologies. They are the survival of the fittest. Ego, me versus you. Bad cancer cells, good cells, cancer cells. Kill the cells, bomb them, radiate them, poison them. And it's the same thing. And the, so you have the cure to cancer that we use in, in modern medicine doesn't work any better than our cure for war. And that's how we solve the, the, the oneness or the, uh, the separation in, in, in the world is we fight our enemies, we kill our enemies. And the same thing we're using in medicine is we have these bad cells and we got to kill these bad cells. And the Bankston, uh, uh, technique is that there really are no bad cells. The, these, the cancer cells are just like capitalist economies. They're well, very, hold, hold on for a second. What you're saying is very interesting because, again, I, I love this conversation because it's taking me into both of the radio programs that I discuss. But what you said about the cancer, chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, it's all standard of care. So when they, the radiation or chemo, they attack the good ones and the bad ones. Just like in war, when we lose innocent people, what do we call them? Innocent bystanders. Same thing with the cells that are good cells because... These technologies, quote unquote technology, do not discriminate. They kill everything around it. They don't say, let's kill the cancer. No, they kill everything. The children who have a brain tumor, 
they put radiation and they're not thinking that they're going to make the child blind. They're going to make the child deaf. So we need to start getting away from that. But the moment we start getting away from that and looking for alternative quote unquote cures that have been around for millennia, what happens? Those in quote unquote control make him illegal. Yeah, it becomes us. We become the bad guys. Exactly. Bad guys. And and of course, I always say this in terms of ufology as well. And in medical, it'll work the same thing. Uh, they're not going to ever admit that they're the bad guys. They're, everybody is the good guy. Everybody is always the guy who's saving the world. And they, they believe they're saving the world. They believe they're doing the right thing. So if you come and you sort of shatter this, this worldview that they have, then their little storyteller is built to make a story and to say, you're bad, you're, you're, you're a, a witch doctor, you're selling snake oil, and that's the way it is. And they will take you on as because their world is, is a left-brain world. It's good versus bad. They're going to be always the good guy, and you're always going to be the bad guy, which comes to, I'm, I'm, the, the more I get into this whole thing, the less I really believe in evil. I, I really don't believe that anybody's really evil or that there are any evil aliens or anything. I think it's all this this idea that everybody thinks they're the good guy. And I always use the example of George Bush Sr. And I say, I mean, do people seriously think that George Bush Sr. gets up every morning and tries to say, you know, i got to figure out how to destroy the world for my grandchildren. I mean, he may be totally deluded. All these guys may be totally deluded in what they're doing. They're using the wrong ideas, the wrong principles, the wrong understandings. But they all believe they're saving the world. They, they think they're doing the right thing. The, the, the way the world works the, the best is if the Bushes have all the money. That's, that's the way we do it. We have more rich people. And uh, don't worry about the poor people. They deserve to be there. And it's us versus them. And if we don't uh, try to steal all the money and get all the money, then we're, going, we're not going to survive. We're going to be overrun and by uh, foreign lands and stuff like that. So I, I have this idea that uh, it, it all comes down to this, this idea. You either believe in self in that everything is random, that it's me versus you, good versus bad, or you believe that everything is one, that we are all leaves on a tree, and the tree needs the leaves, and the leaves need the tree. And what we do is we sort of, we, we create enemies. So we say, okay, uh, uh, the, the Jews, they're the bad. Okay, cut off the Jewish branch. And, or we do it with the Arabs. We say, uh, let, let's cut off uh, this Arab branch. So then we go and bomb them. And of course, uh, all the surviving people, you just create a bunch of terrorists and they say, okay, we're going to kill you. And they come over and kill a bunch of our people and they cut off our branch and we cut off their branch and then we cut off another branch and they cut off our branch. And next thing you know, and this is what the alien message is, is that sooner or later, you're going to cut all the branches off and the tree's going to die. You can't keep working with this us versus them mentality. You have to realize that we're all together. We're all one. Or like Ronald Reagan said, how the world would unite if we realized that we were under threat from an alien nation. We'd realize that we're all one nation. And that's basically whether he knew this this role or that he just, you know, accidentally hit it. That is the idea. We are all one. We are all together. And the idea every time we get into this self, me versus you, is when we get into the good versus, good versus bad, and whether we're medical doctors or uh, ufologists or uh, whatever we are, we have to have an enemy. And it's like, uh, if we don't have an enemy, we're going to create an enemy, because there, that's where all the our um, unhappiness comes from, is from other people. It's, not, it's never got to do with us. And what the aliens are telling us is simply, you are the ones, you can only save yourself, you are the ones that have to build yourself, they're working on an individual basis, and basically, uh, as uh, Yvonne Smith told me, everybody that she's gotten to that point when she regresses them, everybody sees the screen on the ship. And the screen shows one of two things. It shows this nuclear disaster where the world gets blown up or it shows this environmental damage. 
And that's basically the uh, idea that they are here to help us. They're giving us these warnings about the fact that we're ready to put the world off a cliff ecologically and or with, with nuclear weapons. And they're showing us our future and our options. And they're motivating people one by one on the bottom. And those people are, are, are spreading out uh, with, with groups, with uh, associations. And it's moving up. And you can see uh, how things have progressed, that we are, especially in ufology, we are way farther ahead than when I started. When I started, it was just lights in the sky. Uh, now we sort of understand how it ties into reality. And it's gone past the point where we get to actually apply it to things like Bankston and the can you get into consciousness from UFOs and then the consciousness you get into this, uh, Bankston thing and Bankston's now into, uh, um, Bernadette Dorn has done an interview or done a, a lecture and she provided me her notes from her lecture, her, her slides. And she is now stating 95% effective against Alzheimer's that the Bankston method is, is effective against that as well. So here you have another supposedly incurable uh, disease where the Bankston method can be very good in the very, very first uh, issues. And that is one of the big um, arguments that um, um, people have used, um, uh, skeptics have used, is this whole idea of supporting the brain. That it, when a person gets Alzheimer's, that the brain, it proves that the brain is, when, once the cells die, the memories uh, leave. And no, this, this shows you can actually reverse it. It's almost like the old days when you had the TV, you know, where, uh, you, the, 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 the football game would go off and you'd go and grab the rabbit ears and you'd bring the signal back. And, and this is what the, the Bankston thing is, is actually showing is that even Alzheimer's, which we think is, is the brain dying, that you can actually bring back those memories, that the memory is not going anywhere. And that's their thing is that the brain cells die, the memories die. And this shows you that the memory and the and brain and memory are not the same thing. The, the, the mind is, is outside the brain and that if you can, uh, reconnect the, this, the signal mechanism, you can bring, bring that thing back. And so you take this Bankston method, which is effective against, except for, uh, Parkinson's, um, non, uh, like non-cancerous things like warts and stuff like it, it can't do anything only where there's a need. But in terms of, uh, most diseases, it's very effective and showing that um, you can go from UFOs to consciousness to this, and you can actually apply this thing and give a lecture and actually help somebody in that audience who actually might save their life by hearing your lecture. So it, it's actually getting applicable. Before it was, there was really no, it was just stories, UFO stories and stuff like that. But, now but, you can but, actually but, apply it to people's lives. But if I remember my conversation with uh, Dr. Bankston, I think that sometimes if somebody would come to his, his, his practice and they did not believe they would. They were so close, closely minded, so skeptical about it that sometimes this wouldn't work. And it ties to what you said about our bodies composed of trillions of atoms. I think that we have trillions of cells in our bodies. If you if you wake up in the morning and and say to yourself, "I will have a bad day," guess what? You're communicating that to your cells, and they react and go to work accordingly in preparation of what will be a bad day. The opposite is also true. I will have a good day, or I have a mission today to accomplish something, and you not only believe it, but you will accomplish it. You know you will accomplish it yourselves, and you know this sounds new agey, but more than believing it, you know that it will happen, and your cells go out there to work, and the universe conspires to make it happen. Yeah, 
There, but Banks, Bankston actually says the opposite. I, I agree with you on that on that principle. I'll, I'll explain that in a second. But Bankston actually says the opposite. That when he did when he did the the trials, he would pick students who didn't believe anything. He, he said if a student said, "Oh, I, I'm into energy healing. I like to do that stuff," he would say, "Get away from me! Yeah, I, I don't want you." And he had the most skeptical students. The students that he used for the healing were students that thought he was running an experiment on gullibility, or who would say to him, "Are you kidding? You actually want me to do this?" And and he even talks about the mice. He said the mice didn't have to believe. And when when Alex had his thing, I said to Alex. Uh, when, when he got his palpitation thing done, I said, did you do the rapid image cycling? He said, no, I was just the mouse in the cage <laughs> and I did the cycling, but he didn't. And he, he just said, I'm just going to leave it. Uh, but you, there is that effect and that comes into this whole idea. And I, I was actually a discussion on with uh, some of the free people last night. And that's the whole idea about, uh, the evil, sort of the bad experience with, um, abduction experiences. And what I was proposing is I said, well, how much of this is being manifested by the by the person? How, how much are they taking into this where if you. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can. I don't know what happened. Uh, there was a, you were breaking up a little bit there just before this happened. So now what, what, what you're talking about, Bankston and the students who thought, nope, I'm going to be the mice. Yeah, where, where the students, the, the students that he picked up were the most skeptical students that he, he could find. And he talks about the fact that, um, the mice didn't have to believe and the mice got cured. So he, he actually has the opposite. He says that, that it really has nothing to do with belief. He thinks it has to do with need. That if the, the people have need, that, um, that, that is the key factor. And he believes it's actually the patient who is creating the cure and not the, the person. The person does the cycling. And the, the interesting thing about the cycling, and I discussed it with, with this, uh, one of his healers, and she sort of didn't agree with me, but what happens is you'll, when you see Bankston do the, uh, some of his lectures, he talks about the fact that when the mice were there, that the mice would line up with his left hand and that they would actually take the tumor and they would press the tumor against the cage, against his left hand. And then he would, they would spin the cage and the mice would go right back and put the tumor against his left hand. And that w what they would do is they would do this rapid image cycling. And as soon as they could feel the heat coming out of the left hand, they would stop the rapid image cycling and just let the, the, the energy or whatever flow through the cage of, of the mice. And that the mice were picking this up, that the, the energy was coming out of the left hand. The interesting thing about this is the left hand is controlled by the right brain. It's the non-local brain. So it, it again it indicates to me that the left brain is being shut down that it's being put put for coffee or whatever, and that the, the right brain is channeling into wherever this energy is. It's coming through the left hand. And the other thing, and I was actually talking to Kathy Martin, and she seemed to confirm this today, is do you know that, we're not 100% sure yet, but it appears that all implants in abductees are on the left side of the body. Very interesting. And that's run by the right brain. Right. So the aliens are in, they're putting the implants in the side that is controlled by the non-local brain. If they wanted to do the the conscious mind, they would put the implants in the right side. And uh, Kathy seemed to confirm to me today, yes, that that seems to be true. That all the implants are on the left side of the body. So this is these are sort of significant type things that that when you look at it, you start to say, or I, at least myself, I start to say, I think I'm on the right road here. I think this this is a lot of this stuff starts to make sense. But in terms of this, this negative, uh, where I, I was saying I agreed with you on this, on this negative thought thing, um, you, you have psychedelic experiences. 
where um, they, they're now doing them again at, at John Hopkins, at NYU, UCLA, and they always have control people in the room that uh, are with, they have at least two of them in the room with the person who's had the, having the experience because at least 30% of all psychedelic experience have at least 30 seconds of a bad experience where the person suddenly sees a demon or starts to go down this sort of real ugly road. And what the, what the, the people in the room do is they'll take the person by the hand and they'll say, don't panic. You ask for this. You ask to do this. Go approach it. Don't be afraid. Just approach it. And then the thing goes away. And so it comes down to this whole thing about experiencers when people talk about the negative experience where they're petrified and they're there and they're all scared. And so the question I was asking with a free group last night was how much of this is manifest? How much of the negative alien abduction experience are we bringing in with this? Why do some people have good experiences and some people have these very negative uh, experiences and some of it may be that we're manifesting it the same as with the psychedelic experience where 30% are sort of manifesting they're bringing in this sort of negative thing and the same with near-death experiences there's a certain percentage of near-death experiences where they have bad experiences so the question is what's happening are these people manifesting this are they taking this into the experience with them and therefore having a negative near-death experience psychedelic experience alien abduction experience or Michael Talbot who wrote the book the holographic universe and he talks about, in one of his interviews, he taught, and, and Ray Hernandez pointed this out to me, he talks about he had a lot of poltergeist experience as a child. And he said that the poltergeist experience that he had would be affected by his mood. If his mood was good, the poltergeist would take his clothes, hang them over the, the plants, play very playful type stuff. But if he was in a bad mood, he would find all sorts of wounds on his body, like needle marks and bites and stuff like this. And he said it was very much uh, his mind was influencing what type of paranormal experience like he had. stigmata. Yeah. And so th this comes down to this whole thing that, and, and basically when you come right down to it, this idea that consciousness manifests matter, it may be exactly that, that everything that we are, that we are producing in whatever experience we're doing, we're manifesting. We are creating the world we see around us. And you, ma you, you manifest the thoughts that you entertain. Yeah, and, and quantum physics seems to back that up, that there really is no time and space, and that uh, you know a, a, an object doesn't appear until you see it, and that you, there really is no screen in your mind, that this is, you know, it's all sort of an illusion, that the only real reality in the world is your consciousness, that you're, you're what you see, and everything outside that is an interpretation of what's coming through your senses. That you're Exactly, making exactly. And we've had this conversation with Dr. Amit Goswami, who's coming back in a, in a few weeks to discuss everything quantum. But before we take our one and only intermission to, to divide the program into two, I have to ask you this, and this is, this is unrelated to your research, but what happened in the past week, kind of an elephant in the room that I want to discuss for a lot of people who are emailing me, asking me for my take on this. What happened in Mexico City at the Palacio Nacional? 7,000 tickets sold. Yeah. About $40, $50 each. 2.5 million online streaming tickets sold at $20. You do the math. You know, I like Jaime Maussan. I've spent time with him in person. I've interviewed him before. He's a good man. But what happened here has a lot of people wondering. I wanted to get your impression of what happened down there with the quote-unquote Roswell slides. Okay. I, I paid. I, it happened to have happened exactly the same time that my experiencer group was meeting in Winnipeg. I have a a group for support for experiencers. And so we played it. And um, what I would say is that this battle was going on long before uh, this thing happened. Everybody had this all decided what it was going to be. And I say the main thing it proves to me 
is the fact that UFO sightings and photos aren't getting you anywhere and they're never going to get you anywhere. That everybody's sitting there and waiting for a messiah. They're waiting for this exclusive case that's going to uh, cause disclosure. It's going to break the whole thing open. And we just sort of set ourselves up all the time. So it, along comes the Jerusalem video. Everybody jumps on it. And everybody is the talk of the town. And everybody goes. And then someone says, oh, it was a hoax. And it looks like, oh, maybe it was a hoax. And everybody goes, ah, I knew it. I, I knew it. And they go off to the next case. And we sit there. Instead of figuring out what we've got and going to something like talking to experiences where you can actually learn something, we're sitting there waiting for the 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 uh, UFO sighting that's going to convince everybody, or the photograph that's going to convince anybody, and it convinces me that there really is no that that is not evidence that's ever going to convince anybody of anything. And the UFO community is the way it's always been that there's this battle, you know, and it there the, the sort of the skeptics, the ones that want to play the scientific thing, prove it to me, versus the sort of the people who sort of accept everything at 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 first glance. And these people battle it out every time, and they'll they'll this will go on for a couple of months, and everybody will say, well, it didn't resolve anything, and everybody will uh, keep their their position and not back off their position. And what's going to happen is because we're waiting for the 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 magic bullet, the uh, smoking gun, somebody's going to come along with something else, and we're going to go through the same circus all over again. It just proves to me that you're really not going anywhere with this. And as for Jaime Masson, I know Jaime Masson very well too, and I agree with you, and that's his game. I mean, Jaime Masson, you and I both go to UFO Congress all the time, and you know that he is the main ticket at UFO Congress. Uh, he's Saturday afternoon. He's the prime event. Uh, you can't get in the room, and people want this kind of garbage. They want videos, and that's why Jaime Masson is so popular. Is because he shows video after video after video. That's his game. It's not like Jaime Masson made this thing up. And even the, the, a lot of people got this whole thing that he was sort of behind it and even had my name on the list. Like, you know, me and Dolan and Jaime Masson and we all got together and we decided we're going to create this this huge hoax and people are using the hoax. To me, it's not hoax. It may be a misinterpretation of these two people got a, these two photographs that look like aliens and they decided they, this is worth a million bucks because you and I both know that anybody in ufology you and I and everybody else, we're all millionaires. We're making millions of dollars. And so, of course, if, if you're on the outside and you suddenly get two photographs that look like they're aliens, of course, you figure, like, this is my chance to make a million dollars, and you're going to go out and make some money. So these people wanted to sell this thing, and they got Jaime, and Jaime likes this kind of stuff. This is his game. Uh, he just plays one video after another. He doesn't. He's not really a researcher where he's analyzing this stuff, and he's doing all this kind of stuff. And people will, he can create a crowd. He can do this kind of stuff. And that's what I think, if, if this turns out to be a hoax, it was these two people who got these two slides that they thought looked like aliens. Jaime bought into it. Jaime figured, I can get the crowd. That's why everybody, and I'm sort of kind of sad that a lot of people joined the crowd, went down there and joined into this thing when they had not seen the photos. I mean, that was like death, I mean, asking to be killed. Because unless you see the photo, why would you sort of put your credibility on the line and go sit there and or be go on... Uh, on, on video, like uh, Paul Heller was on video, and uh, they brought in, you know, Edgar Mitchell and people like this. Who Don really, Schmidt. Yeah, well, Sh well Schmidt, uh, Schmidt was involved. I mean, he, he had seen the photos, but all these other people hadn't seen the photos. So why would you allow your credibility to be put at stake when you haven't seen the photos and sort of back the photos when you haven't seen them? And and now you have the, the situation where, you know, people are getting hate mail and it's it's sort of broken out. And yet, in the end, it's still consciousness. Like I say, we are no different than any other social and political movement, whether it's African-Americans, whether it's gays, whether it's women's right to vote. A lot of bad stuff had been written about gays, 
women, African-Americans, and it didn't stop them from getting uh, uh, sort of uh, noticed that the more we talk about it, it's almost like as long as they spell your name right, that the, the more people discuss the subject, the more it's, it's out there, the more people discuss it, whether good or bad, sooner or later, enough people are discussing it. And like the gay rights or like women's right to vote, everybody's going to decide to do the right thing. People are not stupid. Nobody wants to destroy the world. Everybody's going to say, yeah, it's probably, they're probably right. These aliens are there. So to me, the more we talk about it, the more controversy there is. It doesn't bother me at all. It's just, uh, it's, it's kind of sad that it's sort of gone down this road. But as I said, it was, this war was on before it, it ever, it ever, um, was published and people were sending me messages and saying, so-and-so this broadcaster say it, this is going to be a hoax. And I said, how the heck would this guy know? It hasn't even been broadcast. How can you decide what's going to happen? So the, the positions were set before this ever, before these sh- photos were ever shown. You know, and, and just to, to close the segment, when we, again, when we think of, as you well said, slavery, women not being able to allow to vote, gay rights, et cetera, things didn't change overnight. It took a long time for people's consciousness to change. But in the 21st century, people want instant gratification grants. So it's hard to be patient these days. That's why it's important to revisit those events in history that happened throughout the last 150 years. This closure, folks, and I've said this from day one, won't come from the top down. It will come from the bottom at, the, at a grassroots level, one person at a time. This reality will take time to accept and to evolve. So with that, Grant, how can people buy the book? Whether when they listen, I don't know if the title will be still the same, but how can they buy this book and all your other publications? Uh, Amazon has the book and the Kindle version. That's probably the best place to get it. Um, my, my, my website, I can't really ship. That's the problem. I'm in Canada, so I really can't ship books. So I would say the best place is to go through Amazon, get the Kindle or everything there. And I have some articles on, uh, uh, on the book on my website, presidentialufo.com. Always a pleasure having Grant Camera on, and we have so much more to discuss. I want to explore one more time the Chris Bledsoe story. We did an excellent interview a few years ago, folks. If you haven't, if you haven't listened to it, you must. But a few things that happened when Grant went there in person that I want to revisit. The, 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 the tree that caught fire, Nelly the dog that all of a sudden started bleeding, things like that, and other cases that uh, we need to discuss one more time. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, supplements, iUSB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. to earth one day Looked to left and right of it Couldn't stand the sight of it And said let's fly away They took a look at a western movie Somebody heard them say 
If a horse can be a star, think how dumb the people are, we'd better fly away. Then they shook their little green antennas, scratched their purple hair. Said this planet is an awful menace, let's go back to where we came from. Two little men in a flying saucer just didn't care to stay. No, Said it's too peculiar here, headed for the stratosphere and quickly flew away. Field in Brooklyn when the Dodgers played a baseball game. Hey! Heard all the screaming, said we must be dreaming, cause the planet is insane. During their mission, heard a politician making speeches as they traveled by. Gabble, gabble, gabble. But they departed faster than they started, cause the hot air blew them sky high. Flew down to earth one day Listened to a radio Saw a television show And said, let's fly away They got their fill of commercial jingles And they were heard to say All the people seem to be Living in a nursery We'd better fly away Traveled all around and once they'd seen us Said let's head for space We were better off on Mars and Venus Goodness what a place to live in Two little men in a flying saucer Just didn't care to stay No, no Crossed a crowded thoroughfare Saw the hats the women wear And quickly flew and quickly flew away One look and then they flew